Welcome to the Managing Your Multi-Passionate Life Show. Your host, Carol Dixon Carr, is an educator of and a participant in many eclectic subjects, and she loves it that way. Each week, she'll bring you episodes and stories on how you can navigate those multiple passions while managing your mental, spiritual, physical, and emotional energy in your life as a whole. So here's Carol. Well, hello. This is super exciting. I'm here like 11 years later podcasting again, and I had one back in 2007 through about 2009, and I called it Productivity Talk. I had some solo shows, but mostly I had people interviewing with me. But then due to a few things that happened in my life, I let that and a number of other things go, and you'll definitely hear about that journey of my perceived demise in time for sure. But it is kind of interesting to me that people are saying that podcasting is this new thing. It's really not. I remember I was devouring other people's podcasts in like late 2005. And I was doing that probably until about 2009 when I was feeling like my life had fallen apart in 2009. I'll talk about that in episode two. (laughs) But present day Carol is much happier. Definitely, definitely still on the journey. Definitely. And also 2020 taught me quite a bit because I tend to be a bit of a control freak and 2020 said, no boo, you're not going to be that. So I adapted. And I created this pod, uh, this podcast to show people, particularly folks with a lot of interests, multiple interests and passions that they really aren't alone in navigating this life because You know, it's really easy to get scattered and distracted and frustrated if you're not mindful of it. And I say this because that's been me. And it still can be me if I'm not mindful, for sure. But in retrospect, I've always known, even before I started doing work on myself, whenever you start a business, you have to, because all of your issues come up. (laughs) And I have a lot of them. (laughs) still working through them. But yeah, even though... I was unconscious about some of these things before I started doing the work. I think I was operating out of managing at least my mental and physical energy. I mean, I always love to move. Dancing is fun to me. Reading, writing, doing music-related things. Um, Since I was probably before I could even talk, according to my mom anyway. So it wasn't really until I was 30 years old and beyond, that was around 1997, when it came to consciously finding ways to managing the spiritual and emotional energy, and by extension, consciously managing the mental and physical energy. So in this podcast, the goal is to just share personal anecdotes and also interview other people as the spirit hits me who have been on their own journeys. And really the tips and strategies that I will share will Likely be something you've heard before, but if it's new to you, cool. But if it is something you've heard before, it might be a good reminder. I always say, have a beginner's mind. There is nothing new under the sun, so you know, it is what it is. So my vibe will be more like a quote-unquote, well, in my experience, dot, dot, dot. And because that's all I know, you know, my experiences and the things that I've learned in my process formally and actually just kind of the school of hard knocks. I am not a sage from the stage by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe a guide from the side? Yeah? So I'm 
thinking, I'm visualizing perhaps me and you just, you know, sitting in front of each other at a coffee shop that's really artsy and cool and quirky because I'm artsy and cool and quirky. Well, I like to think I was cool. I don't know. <laughs> that's not always been the case. But yeah, I would think it would be kind of fun and we just commiserating and if I could hear you talking back to me that would be even more awesome but since this is a podcast you get Carol's monologue (laughs) but of course we have to imagine that COVID has miraculously vanished and we're good and healthy and don't have to worry about catching a virus but in this inaugural kickoff for the managing your multi-passionate life podcast I wanted to share a little bit about me And talk about how, you know, it wasn't really easy at the beginning to navigate this life. Really, to just navigate being Carol. Because, yeah, I'm just really, even my daughter tells me, Mom, you are an odd bird, but I love you. She loves me. (laughs) That's all that matters. (laughs) But anyway, I really wanted to talk about that. Just so it's kind of one of those, you're not alone. You might be able to relate to some of the things you might not. I don't know. Some of the, as they say, eat the hay, leave the sticks. But I wanted to really share more about me and talk about it. It just really wasn't really always that simple. And a lot of it really didn't have anything to do with me being interested in a whole lot of things. Um, a big part of it was just really tied to me being this weirdo. And I'm at, I've embraced it now. I'm 53. We'll be 54 this year. But that wasn't always the case. I mean, I really was... I. You know, I was this quirky, chubby black kid who didn't look like my classmates up until junior high. Still, this chubby black middle-aged kid now. Now, kid at heart. <laughs> but I'm just, like, better at coping at th- with things. Even with, as I'm recording this, uh, some crazy things happened at the Capitol yesterday. So, yeah, you just have to take a deep breath, of course. But when I was young, I mean, and young, really young And maybe even now too, but it doesn't matter as much. But when I was super young, I just really, it was really clear that I was just different. Didn't even matter who I was surrounded by. I was just, I really didn't fit in. I tended to typically ask a lot of questions that most kids my age wouldn't ask about the world. I would assume that people would see songs and colors or days of the week in colors or the alphabet. They call that being a synesthete. I found that out, I don't know, back in the late 90s, but... For the longest time, I thought everybody had that quote-unquote affliction. I assumed that everybody could play songs by ear. I used to assume that like loud crunching noises was really irritating to everybody, but it sounds like I'm just part of that tribe who has an affliction called misophonia. So I did some research on that, and and it's not it's kind of a stigma, but it is what it is. Loud crunching really bugs me. I mean, it really bugs me. So... My family is really mindful of that and try to be six feet away from me, (laughs) even in non-COVID times they are. Um, When they have uh, potato chips, they have to go somewhere else to do that. So those are the things that make up Carol. And at school all the way through undergrad, I I got called weird quite a bit and sometimes much worse. And that quote-unquote much worse really happened um, probably through high school. I mean, in college, I got called weird a lot, but I didn't get called out of my name because of my race nearly as much after high school. But to be fair, you know, I was a weird kid. I mean, I would burst into song and dance just because I 
really felt like it. You know, even in current times, I'll do that in the grocery store. And if my daughter's with me, she's like, Mom, stop, stop. I mean, she's grown and she'll still say, stop, just stop, you know. <laughs> and, you know, nowadays I don't really care. But back in the day, the playground, that's not a place to just be random like that. My mom loved my creative spirit. But, yeah, the playground, no, not so much. But, you know, at least in third grade, I gained a bit of academic cred when I kept advancing in the class. Uh, what, it was a flashcard game called Travel. So, like, they hold up the flashcard, and whoever says it first gets to advance. And so people wanted me to go on their team, and I'm like, all right, cool. I got some, I got some cred, academic cred that way. But honestly, I ultimately dimmed who I truly was so I could just have a friend or two. It is what it is sometimes. I mean, I really had a big-time identity crisis. You'll hear about that as we go along. I mean, it was real. And I did overcompensate a lot with humor and putting on a brave, happy face. I mean, I did that into adulthood. Sometimes I still do that just to cope, except for when somebody would trigger me and make me angry. Then all bets were off. Although I have a much better control of my anger in the last couple of decades. But yeah, that all of that went on until I got to graduate school and I met some silly quirky nerds there and I ended up I actually ended up marrying one of those quirky nerds. So, yeah, there's someone for everybody out there. <laughs> Whew. So, the dash between the end of my formal or what you could say my traditional education and now has been an interesting journey. So, how about I start with fast forwarding to now? going to do a rewind just so you can kind of understand kind of what makes me tick as I do these episodes because I promise you it's not going to be a hundred percent all about Carol just I want you to get to know me and see if my vibe is what you want to kind of hang out with so yeah you really kind of need to know if you want to keep hanging out or not I'm not offended if I'm not your cup of tea I that's one of those things you had to learn over time because yeah the fear of rejection in my life when it comes to things like this and being visible. Very real. But now I'm like, whatever. People are going to judge you no matter what. So those who resonate will stick around and those who don't, well, they won't. So who is Carol Dixon Carr nowadays? Well, I am currently an economics and business writing professor at a local university in Dallas. I've been teaching there for 14 years, which is no small feat, because I tended to, prior to getting at the getting into the gig at the university, I tend to get really restless, probably two years in, always kind of looking for another job. So, yeah, I've been hanging out there for 14 years, and I've enjoyed that. But since I am a multi-passionate, I also, uh, from about 2012 to pre-COVID, I also had private music students voice, primarily voice, and then later on, um, a little bit of piano. I still have one piano students who actually does come over because we are six feet away with masks and she's on one keyboard and I'm on another. So that works and it was a lot of fun. And also in Texas, because the gyms are open, we can actually have masked, socially distanced, smaller sized group fitness. And I'm grateful for that because ever since the pandemic hit, I have admittedly been remiss in moving with purpose like I used to pre-pandemic, so it's I'm glad that a group exercise option is still there. And I teach dance fitness at the gym, and I also teach a format called Pop Pilates, which is a lot of fun. 
And I'm also in the midst of creating a creative career quest. Say that 10 times fast. For those who are at, at a crossroads in their career. Because I definitely know a little something about that. I mean, that was me from 1993 to 2007. More on that in the next episode. <laughs> but anyway, all of those things I currently do because it helps either ground me like in the case of economics and just teaching at the university, or just giving me life in the case of anything tied to music and art and that kind of thing. And that's always in the background when I'm thinking about what I'm doing. I mean, some of those things used to be hobbies, but now they are paid gigs. And it keeps my emotional, spiritual, physical, and mental energy all in check. That's the filter I'll be coming through when I do these episodes. Thinking about the energy, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's really cool because it keeps me healthy overall. I was very, very grateful that I stayed healthy the entirety of 2020. And even when you think about it, it's like, yeah, you're teaching at the gym. I was masked, I was distanced, but you still never know. So I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping me healthy. Amen. But rewinding back again. By junior high, I was kind of a cliche. My sister and I were being raised by my mom alone, except both of my parents. They're educated, and both of my both of my parents are black, and they grew up in Jim Crow South, but they still were able to get their college education and advanced degrees. My mom was an elementary teacher. My dad was a chemistry professor, a chemistry professor of the Breaking Bad variety. Of that's unfortunate. He was arrested for the first time when I was in fourth grade for making drugs on campus. He was already tenured. How embarrassing. And I was kind of in la-la land. I mean, I was nine when that was going on. My mom, It was really putting, taking my mom through it. And I really was in my own little world thinking about it. But you know, as more kids were not being allowed to play with me, then I finally was like, all right, yeah, this is an issue. And the apartment complex that we lived in, like the whole time that we lived there, from like 72 to 78-ish, yeah, we were the only black family there. Uh, so yeah, that kind of exacerbates the quote. Yeah, see, look at that. Look at that. He's a criminal. They're all criminals. No, he's he's a very intelligent guy who made some really bad, really bad decisions. But I hate when stereotypes are perpetuated. So I used to call him an educated dummy because I was just so angry and a lot of my anger management was tied to daddy issues. But I did have a reprieve um, that last year we did live in that complex. Uh, that was summer, summer of 78 was actually pretty good. We would go visit him at the prison because, you know, my mom was like, yeah, it's still your dad, whatever. And at the time I was dabbling in entrepreneurialism that summer going into sixth grade and I was really exhibiting those leadership skills. You know, if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTJ. Tiny little T, though, because there's a lot of... I'm a serious empath, which we'll definitely have an episode about that. I promise you. But yeah, there's a lot of leadership skills that kind of emerged. I was only like 11 years old, and I had team members. I'm like, all right, we're going to go to the gong show. We are going to do this dance routine to... Um, Heatways boogie nights, and we're gonna do a fundraiser, and we're gonna I'm gonna choreograph this. It was cheesy. It didn't matter. I was 11. They thought it was cool. <laughs> we sold concessions. I mean, I put all that together, and the puppet show, all of it. So that was a lot of fun. Even though you know, in retrospect, I'm like yeah, that was so cheesy. But hey, we made some money. It wasn't a ton of money. I think we made like 
And 78, 20 bucks was a lot to me. So we split it up four ways. So it was really like five bucks for each of us. Pretty cool. But yeah, um, after the divorce, because, you know, if you go from chemistry professor to felon, then we've got my mom's income only. So we moved to a more integrated neighborhood um, after the divorce. And that was in the transition. I got called an Oreo a lot instead of the N-word. But I did have a friend who was in the 8th grade who took me under her wing when I was in the 7th grade. And she still made fun of how I talked because, you know, I really was. Truth be told, I was clueless about black culture given where I grew up for the first decade of my life. Decade plus, really. But she used to uh, let me come visit her church. And I really loved visiting her AME church. I fell in love with gospel music early on. Loved hearing all the, I mean, with more regularly, um, R&B and funk. I love most genres now still, but something about R&B and funk and gospel, it just makes me happy. It makes me want to move. It makes me want to dance to it, sing to it, all of it. I mean, those were my pockets of joy. But most of the time, I had absolutely no self-esteem. I had a lot of frustration, lots of anger, and anxiety and depression kind of followed me like a nasty little habit over the years. I didn't really know what was going on. I know part of it was being bullied. Part of it was the daddy issues. I'd never heard him say, I love you even once. Look at, I mean, I've been on the planet for a long time, still haven't heard it. So yeah, very angry depressed over the years. I mean, I was never, and I never will be malicious, but my temper was terrifying. If someone came for me and I was triggered, it was terrifying. And then my husband used to, my husband before he became my husband, and even after we got married, he would call it the wrath of Carol. Yikes. I'm not proud, but yeah, that that's, I mean, you needed to hear all the warts, you know, I've gotten a lot of, like I said, you're just hearing all kind of the dark stuff, there's some light in here, but it's, yeah, it's, I started out in a place where it wasn't my head, your brain can do a lot of interesting things, we'll talk a lot about the brain and how your limbic system can really play some tricks on you at some point, but in the meantime, I was, yeah, no self-esteem, frustration, anger, all of that. That went on for a long time until at least age 30 where I was, especially the anger and the temper, yikes. I mean, I'm still so kind of embarrassed at some of the ways I would just lash out and throw things around the room, that kind of thing. And it really did take, I had three of my coworker friends. It was three. They couldn't do me one-on-one. They had to, like, plan a coup, take took me and wanted to the empty offices on my lunch break. And they really came for me. It was a come to Jesus, like, Carol, your words are really, really hurtful at times. And and they said some other things. And they, were, they didn't do it in a way that I thought was an, an empowering way, but I did get the message. I got the message. And I felt bad because, like I said, I'm not a malicious person. I just know, like, when I'm triggered... And nowadays when I'm triggered, I just, you know, I take a deep breath and I think about <laughs> before I say anything. And it's so much easier to manage that now, especially online, because you can edit what you say. And face-to-face, if somebody says something, my face will betray me pretty quickly before I say even a word. But at least you don't hear the words like you used to hear back, you know, 20, 23 years ago. But yeah, after that intervention, yeah, the depression got worse. I mean, like, really bad. 
but I'm really getting ahead of myself, so let me bring myself in. You know, as a multi-passionate, we could go off into tangents quite a bit, so it's like I could just hear some people who are like more focused. Hey, focus, focus, Carol. Um, back on track. But yeah, anyway, I was really restless. Even as I was following the path that well-meaning people put in front of me, I mean, of course I went to college, but I changed my major so many times, and that was probably my 50, 11th clue about my not being able to fit into anyone's box. I started as a music major, because like since I, before I could talk, that's, that's my self, that's my medicine, that's my air. But I didn't stick with it, I think it was mainly because my mom was like, ah, you, you know, you have an analytical brain, but still... Even though um, mom said that, I still thought I would try art for a minute. I like taking art. I don't do it nearly as much as I, I'd like to. I used to when I was a lot younger in my 20s. But then, yeah, mom kept telling me they were not practical majors. And I have a really analytical math brain as well. Like I mentioned, remember the third grade game of travel? Yeah, that flashcard game was apparently my jam. So with that, I actually thought I would try something like computer science. I did try, you know, when I was in high school, there was a, we had these computers that were just like, they were, I remember, they were like $3,000 in the mid 80s. So $3,000 for a monochrome screen. But I had a lot of fun with basic programming. And I even, and of course, like the music just won't let me. It won't let me be, and I'm, I'm glad for it. I created a program that was a jukebox, and it had songs that were on my radar. So Sheila E.'s Glamorous Life was on there, and I couldn't even tell you how many Prince songs were on there. Purple Rain had just come out the previous summer. So that was, yeah, I was a Prince fanatic and was shook when he died in 2016. It really messed me up. But anyway, I didn't think I wanted to be a computer science major because my personality didn't really mesh with that. I mean, I really presented really more extroverted then, and I am outgoing, but I still need to recharge these. Back then, because I hadn't dealt with my issues, I really did not like being alone. But, you know, I think my natural state is more of an ambivert. I, I enjoy my own company now. I just really hated being alone with my thoughts back then when I was young. So, being a computer science major and not being able to talk to people as much, or at least that's how I perceived it, that didn't work either. So I finally settled on business, and I stayed with that for for quite a while, actually. I didn't change things mid-semester. A couple years in, you know, in my junior year, economics was one of the, you had to take micro and macro, and when I was taking micro, they were both prerequisites to the major, I had a professor who really took me under his wing. He said, I know that you already have a major, but we really like good students to be in the major. Let me, let's make it clear. My freshman and sophomore year, I was still finding my way. So my GPA wasn't fabulous. It started getting more fabulous. And I was doing amazingly in uh, my microeconomics class. So he wooed me into the major, which I think had more to do with my daddy issues. He, I was like, oh, wow, a male, male role model. Like, I would think he's probably old enough to be my dad, maybe a little younger. Didn't look anything like me. Didn't have my same politics, but he was kind to me, and he believed in me. So um, he became a very 
amazing mentor. He's, I still think about his impact on the decisions I made in my life. Um, it really did fill a, a void with my daddy issues. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But yeah, it also meant that I was going to be on the five-year plan. And thank God that at that time, classes didn't cost too much, you know. I was at a, um, a state school, so. And plus it was the 80s, so. I didn't go into a ton of debt for that. It was good. So I changed my major to economics because I did not want to let him down. He was the department chair at the time, too. He was the one who put grad school on my radar. And if you had told me at the beginning of my college career that I was going to get a graduate degree in economics and ultimately be a university professor, I would have said you were crazy. I knew that I was interested in business. I mean, that never went away. I mean, even to this day, I mean, because, and I would be what my, one of my coaches calls a micropreneur because I do these things, but I did minor in marketing, but that marketing was more from the filter of working for a company and doing focus groups and surveys for big business and analyzing data with statistical analysis and things like that. Not really actually doing that guerrilla marketing you have to do if you're like a solopreneur. And I was never really good at that buy my stuff energy. I have a little, well, let's be honest, I have kind of a big woo-woo component to how I live. That I mean, that didn't really come into play, being until I started my coach training. But I just think a lot of the stuff that I that comes to me is kind of by referral is tied to that whole vibration thing you don't have to believe in it it's just like I said we all have different ideas but I just never could get into the sales process in the way that I you know I was trained later I have a better feeling about it because I believe it's a serving situation but yeah again tangenting let's go back to when I got out of graduate school yeah all right I'll get a job I'll pay the bills I tried that although I graduated in 93, and uh, it was in California, and the employment rate in California was double digits at the time, and I could not find one thing that I could use my degree in, but, you know, the responsibility dream says you got to find a job, so even if you find something that you're woefully overqualified for, just take the first thing that you get. So I answered, remember when we actually had paper paper, I was looking at the one ads, I answered a blind one that says, hey, come to this thing and you can make this money, blah, blah, blah. It was so vague, but I showed up anyway. And it turned out to be um, an ad selling Electrolux vacuums door to door. I was terrible at it. I tried it for six weeks, living in LA in a very bad neighborhood. (laughs) Really, It was torture. I sold three. One to my then fiance. He's now my husband, obviously. Uh, one to my mom, and then one to a stranger that I actually did sell when I was knocking on people's doors. I really hate canvassing. Can't stand it. I mean, I don't like it when people come to my door, so I really felt like a big old hypocrite. So I cried to my mom and asked her to actually help me with my finances so I could find a job that paid something regularly. And I didn't really find a real job that used my degree right away. This is still 93. I found a job that was kind of like a receptionist or maybe secretarial vibe to the vice president of an insurance company. So I didn't use my degree at all for that one either, but at least it wasn't door-to-door sales. But I needed a job, and like I said, that job, that job was actually in Orange County, but I was already selling vacuum cleaners in LA when I moved to LA. God, I I would never just up and move to LA in a really crappy (laughs) apartment. You know, the things you learn, it's hindsight, I tell you. That apartment, it wasn't an apartment, it was actually a studio, a roach-infested studio that no matter how much you cleaned it, they would 
they would still be your roommates no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, what can you do? It was 20000 a year. And even in 1993, that is nothing. So I took whatever I could get because I was never afraid of work. I've had some interesting jobs in my day. The responsibility gene has really been ingrained for me at a very, very early age. So I supplemented that gig, my secretarial gig, teaching part-time at a business college. They had some nighttime positions. It wasn't a high-paying gig either, but it paid more than 20000 a year if you annualized it. And I enjoyed that. It paid a lot more, actually, than the secretarial gig. But still, I did everything I could do to save money so that I could actually move into a slightly better neighborhood. And I did eventually, although that neighborhood went down over time as well. But that's another story. So out of graduate school, still engaged, not, not married yet. My husband, or I should say the, my then fiancé, was working on his dissertation. So yeah, we were broke. Um, when we got married, we were broke. So we were on a budget when we got married. Both sides, my mom and then his family. They, they contributed some, but yeah, we, you know, it was a budget rating and we got it, got it done. But the whole idea of me working and getting a respectable salary didn't really happen until I moved to Florida in 1995. I didn't care for those jobs though. I mean, I did, and the reason why is because I didn't have the autonomy and I found out that autonomy is a very important, very important value of mine. Honestly, since 1994, like a year out of graduate school, I was always actually looking for the perfect business. I would go to the library and do all kinds of research. And I, you know, if I you taking the strengths minded input and learner, like my first two, <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. But yeah, I did a lot of research. I really enjoyed the, enjoyed the learning. But uh, confession, I didn't really do a whole lot with the information. It was just the idea of learning about it. And then in 1997, two years into working, as a legislative analyst at the time, I got a pamphlet in the mail that looked, well, it looked like a pamphlet, and it was kind of a gimmick where you could lose weight and get paid, and still a little naive at the time. I, And of course, I've, I've never had a metabolism, so I thought, you know, I was super intrigued by that. And it turned out to be tied to a network marketing company that sold nutritional supplements and skincare products. I became a distributor, lost a noticeable amount of weight, but I didn't sell a lot of products. And I, back then, they made you keep inventory, too. It's, it wasn't online or any of that. So I spent a lot of money and went into a lot of debt. And I finally gave that up when I had my daughter in 2000. And I got out of the executive branch employment as a, an analyst and went into the private sector in early 2001. By then, you know, I'd given up the notion of actually having a business or anything like that. So I started writing for fun, fiction, actually. Uh, and I mean, I've been journaling since 1979. I mean, I have shelves and shelves of stuff like that. But I also started composing. I had a friend who was showing me some software that you could just kind of create cool songs and stuff and singing in choirs and sometimes arranging for the for choirs, acapella choirs, the call and response way. And that was a lot of fun because harmonies are my jam. Totally. I mean, and working out to DVDs to keep keep myself sane. Because if I didn't work out at all, I think I would be as tall, uh, I'd be as wide as I am tall. So, I mean, my metabolism, I don't know what to say about that. But I'm grateful that I am still healthy, regardless of not feeling a societal idea of uh, what that looks like. But anyway, the reason why I did all those things is because I really had no autonomy in my full-time job. 
But I did give, I did have a good enough job and it paid well, even though I hated the duties and the culture. The culture was grind culture and stress and beck and call. I hated it. I mean, intuitively, I thought grind culture was just so unhealthy. And that was even back when I was still in my 30s. I never really wanted a badge that said I worked the longest at the beck and call of a stressed out temperamental boss. I only did it for as long as I did because I, that whole responsible gene, it was, was, it is, and will always be there. And of course, the W-2 culture that surrounded me at the time made me feel more abnormal for considering anything else. And it paid well, especially around bonus time. But yeah, one of my coworkers there who was younger than me told me that he was also investing in real estate as a side gig. So yeah, <laughs> like, oh, this sounds cool. This, that would be nice to get some passive income. So I took courses, I even listened to some of the things he said, read up on it, bought my first investment property in 2002 but boy reality and theory did not line up for me I was so naive oh my gosh another story for another time but hey at least I could also honor my hobby so that I would not go completely insane I mean I still had so many unhealed wounds I'm still on the journey I'm still healing I just like I said I have more tools to just deal with things when I get triggered but those activities gave me a reprieve And in those moments, my spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental health were actually pretty good to go. But that's how it was. But it was rare when the walls came crashing down on all areas of my life. Or at least I perceived it that way, especially in 2009. Yeah, there were two such times in my life where depression affected my ability to function. And everything was a serious effort. And you know, on the outside, people didn't know. I was really good at hiding it. But yeah, but anyone with depression and anxiety knows that the brain can really do a number on how you perceive the world. Oh my gosh. And it played some really cruel tricks on my psyche. And again, it was the responsibility gene. And of course, books and the friends I met online who gave birth also in 2000, in the year 2000. I didn't have any. I felt because all my friends moved away <laughs> after, you know, administration changed at the legislature. And I was like, ah, I'm so lonely. Oh my gosh. And 2003, quite, uh, I was really mostly reading books and, you know, talking to friends online because I super, I was really alone, I was really feeling lonely where I was living in the Florida panhandle. And when I got hit with that again in 2009, choir really was the lifesaver for sure. Plus, I had more coping tools by then as well. So that's the only reason why I didn't stay in bed because I really... It was a struggle to get out of bed and go to work. But I did. I went to work. I did my job. And because the responsibility gene really is something that really comes in handy. So I'm going to leave it there and continue this journey about that and how I coped in a little more detail in episode two. So, well, just kidding. I'm not going to leave it there because that was kind of a downer, even without the details. So I will leave you with this. Where there's life, there is hope. And there are resources out there to help you navigate it. If you feel like the proverbial square peg trying to fit into a round hole, I totally get it. But the good news is that you don't have to try and fit into any shape except for the one that serves you. If you have multiple interests, but people keep telling you to focus on one thing and one thing only, even though that's not who you are, just think they're well-meaning selves and still do you. Okay? Okay. Until next time, enjoy the journey. 
Thank you for listening to Managing Your Multi-Passionate Life with Carol Dixon Carr. Be sure to check out her free resources in the show notes. And if any of her words resonate with you, feel free to subscribe and leave a favorable review. Until next time.